As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show and another Listener Questions episode dropping like a Drake album in the feeds of all those certified lover boys and girls out there. Did I sound hip and cool and young when I said that? <laughs> you did until the very end of that. All right. Mission accomplished. <laughs> My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who's not been the subject of a 200 million euro bid from Real Madrid. You just heard his voice, Taylor Rockwell. I mean... Like, there's still time. We could see what happens. Uh, I, I don't know who they'd be negotiating with, and I do feel like any one of the three of you would happily part with me for 200 million pounds. At this point, I shall reveal I am your agent, Taylor, yes. Oh, that's good. I, I, that, I, I probably need one of those. So, all right, I'm going to send Ryan Bailey out to do all my negotiating from now on. Yeah, first, first order of business, I take 75%. Deal. Yeah, that's troubling. That's troubling. <laughs> but you know what? Fair. Fair is fair. As long as you're quality, let's make it happen. Get what you pay for. Also, here is a man who's not been sold back to his old club by Barcelona for a fraction of what was paid for him. It's Joe Lowry. Oh, my word. That deal and everything. I shouldn't be surprised at what happens with FC Barcelona at this point. But somehow I still am. Uh, Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me every time, still shame on me. I don't know what was going on with Barcelona, what has been going on. But that deal is insane. So to paraphrase a tweet from Leo, Liam Twumi excuse me, on Twitter uh, to explain that, Barcelona have sold Anton Griezmann back to Atletico for €40 million. Euros. That's just two years after paying €120 million. Euros. It's quite a lot more. It's three times more. <sighs> so that's decided. That's a transfer fee that they funded originally by taking out a short-term €35 million Euro bank loan and mortgaging €85 million on future income. <laughs> Goodness me. What a well what a wrong club. What a well wrong club, Graham. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> I've just uh, I've just jumped the gun and introduced Graham Rutherford there, who has oh, not I'm been here. given the... Uh, you are here, and you're not wearing the number 10 shirt of Barcelona, unfortunately. That's been given to someone else. It has. It's been given to Ansu Fati. I'm not a fan of that at all. The pressure. <laughs> He's coming off a long-term injury. The pressure on that poor kid is going to be immense. But he he's good, so let's see how he does. You think they give it like one season without having a ten? Why did they have to basically? Messi's locker's barely cold, and they just yeah. That shirt's still warm. The shirt is still warm, indeed, and asymmetrical as it is. Taylor, Graham, is it is the pressure that it's just like simply the number ten for Barcelona, or is it that it's Messi's number ten? That is Messi's. Yeah. Okay. I know that 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 is so soon after uh, he's left as well. I genuinely would have, Ryan and I talked about it, I think, on last week's listener questions. I wouldn't have retired the jersey, but I certainly would have left it for a while, just so that pressure isn't so crippling. And it's if you're going to give it to someone, give it to someone that if you mess up their career, it's not going to be that catastrophic <laughs> and that damaging. But if you mess up Ansu Fati's career, yeah, I'll never forgive you, Barcelona. <laughs> yeah. So you say, like, just give it to an academy kid? Like, hey, yeah. Like, 13-year-old, you're our number 10 now. Good luck. <laughs> Scruffy the yeah, janitor's exactly. getting number 10. All right. 
<laughs> we, we, we actually covered Martin, this Martin Braithwaite the... is getting number 10. That's who they probably were going to give it to. Last week's Listen to Questions, if you listen to it with Graham and I, we did cover this. And I said that they should retire Messi's shirt and all other numbers. Like, it just should be like Batman symbol and poop emoji. Like, they should just go different. That's what I think. <laughs> I mean, I think you want to be innovative. Like, we, we were, there's much discussion today about generic teen names. Maybe you want to go non-generic numbering, Ryan. I, I'm in on it. I like this style. Excellent. I like that you like my style as your mm-hmm. agent in our second yes. order of business, Taylor. 75%, baby. <laughs> Listen to questions time. We've got plenty to get through today. Shall we get started, gents? Let's get started. I answered my own question. Richard Rolson, the alliteratively resplendent Richard Rolson, asks, Daniel Levy has been chairman of Tottenham Hotspur for just over 20 years. In that time, they've risen to be considered one of the, in quotes, large European clubs, but have not been able to make that final step of winning either the Premier League or a European competition. Considering everything, the stadium, the training grounds, the various levels of success, has Daniel Levy been a good steward for Tottenham Hotspur? Uh, so Daniel Levy is he's celebrating his, or I don't know what he's doing, but he's been 20 years in the gig. He took over from Lord Alan Sugar in 2000-2001 season, February of that year. He was the youngest chairman in the league at that point. So kind of deemed as a risky appointment in that sense. Previously, prior to that, he was non-executive director at Glasgow Rangers. Uh, and now he's the longest serving chairman in the Premier League. I'm going to start off here by saying I think it's an absolute net positive uh, from Daniel Levy's time at Tottenham Hotspur. And there's plenty of reasons for it. That that first season, 2000-2001, they finished 12th. Before that, 10th, 11th, 14th, 10th. So they were kind of an average middle-of-the-road Premier League team before he came in. In those 20 years, gents, got them into the Champions League. Got them a trophy, League Cup 2008. Got them a new stadium. Got them one of the best training grounds in the country. Got them some pretty decent players. Uh, Gareth Bale, Luka Modric, uh, Son, Deli, Eriksson. He helped with all those deals. He got them into the big six as it has become. He got them into the Super League for almost two days. And uh, probably most importantly, <laughs> he's, uh, he's kept them financially stable as well. Who's going to come at me and say he? you're going to criticise Daniel Levy and for what he's done? Taylor, what you got? Um, I don't know if I'm going to criticize because honestly, you made a really compelling argument there. And I, and I think I am more focused on the more recent history than the long-term history. And you're right, like that it is even a big six is probably a sign that he has done some pretty impressive work to make Tottenham what they are. And for a period of time, it felt like that they were the club that were most on the rise, that were going to kind of achieve new heights and break in and become this consistent top four contender or maybe even like title contender. I think a lot of that was for me rooted in Pochettino and the way that sort of burnt out and then the search for a new manager this summer and the all or nothing documentary and the Super League. It, it Those things, I think, loom large in my like current memory. But then to think about like he's also the the man who I was sort of as a Man United fan, not excited when we had to negotiate with uh, Spurs for a player, because if it's Carrick or if it's Berbatov, you know that he is going to get every single thing he wants and will not sort of break from his stance. And I I remember him as being this super tough negotiator. And that made it really weird to see him essentially fawning all over Jose Mourinho in that documentary. Yeah. Uh, Joe, where do you stand on the the Daniel Levy situation? Being a good steward for Tottenham, I suppose as Taylor mentioned and inferred there, you could question his treatment of some of his managers. Um, Sacking Martin Yola at halftime of a game, uh, interesting move. Uh, I think maybe the biggest one that Tottenham fans might cite is not backing Pochettino um, with enough cash when the team had real momentum. Joe, any thoughts? Yeah, it's it's frustrating for Tottenham fans, and I can understand them being frustrated that they're not in the Liverpool, City, Manchester United, Chelsea stratosphere right now, and really haven't been for the last couple of seasons. But I love I love the idea that you brought up, Ryan, about where they were when he first took over, right? It has been a massive improvement in terms of results. They made a Champions League final, right? That is that's a big deal. And twenty years ago, or you know, back in two thousand one. That was not in the cards at all. So I I think overall, if you're looking at it in a macro sense, he has been a good steward of this club. I also, looking at it in a financial sense, in terms of the club's valuation, Tottenham's value has skyrocketed in the last 20 years. When Levy took over as chairman, the club was valued at about 80 million pounds. That's a few years before he took over. That was back in 1998. 
Now the valuation is somewhere, and it depends on where you're reading, but somewhere between one and two billion pounds. And part of that, sure, is because is because the football industry is just ballooning, right? But also part of that is because they've been run in a fairly responsible way. The stadium, the new stadium, and the debt that comes with that is a, a bit of an interesting situation. But overall, I think it's hard to look at this this change in Tottenham and not see the the fact that Levy has stewarded them quite well. I'm I'm with you there, Joe. Graham, what do you think about this? I'm trying I'm just trying to think of some negatives. And I think there is the thing yeah. with the managers. There's maybe like the bail money wasn't well yeah. spent. There's that, yeah, that was, dragging that was the, out that, some transfers as well, like the Berbatov one. That, that the the bail the bail um reinvestment is the thing that comes to mind for me. But the, I'm trying to think of I'm actually I think it's Daniel Levy is absolutely a net positive for for Spurs, and going back to this, this has been mentioned a few times. Going back to where, where Spurs were when he took over, those when he took over in two thousand one, those were my formative years as a football fan. So the impressions that I have of clubs from two thousand and one, the early two thousands, are really difficult to shake because that I was ten years old at that time. So that's when I'm really starting to get into football. At that time, I saw Spurs in the same way that I see Aston Villa now. Like they were an Aston Villa club, yeah. like. A, a big, a big team with the potential to break into that top six or the or the top end of the table, but more often than not, mid table, generally underachieving, underachieving for their size. So, like twenty years on, for them to be where they are now has to be a positive. Like that, he has to have done a good job. Twenty years is also a long time, so he's going to make mistakes. You know, I think, I think, you know, hiring Mourinho, and I didn't get that at all. Not just sacking Pochettino. Maybe that was the right thing to do. Maybe that was the end of a cycle. You know, they started the season poorly. Pochettino seemed to be very frustrated. Maybe it was the right time for Pochettino to go. However, the mistake was hiring Jose Mourinho, who Daniel Levy seemed to have this fascination for, and it didn't really line up at all. And it was a bit of a disaster. That's a mistake. The bail money being reinvested poorly was a big mistake as well. And that set back. Tottenham, you know, a good couple seasons until kind of Pochettino comes along. So he's made mistakes. But for a club that isn't Liverpool or Manchester United with the kind of historical advantage that they have, that natural prestige that they have, for a club that isn't Liverpool or Manchester United, a club that doesn't have the backing of a Gulf state or a Russian oligarch, I think Levy has got Tottenham competing as much as as realistically possible. I mean, yes, they could have done a Leicester or something, but that's that you can't count on anything like that for them to be up there consistently. I think has to be an, uh, an achievement. Yeah. The thing I think you all are making very good arguments. The thing that I I think still struggle with and welcome your thoughts on is uh, to Graham's point about Jose Mourinho. I feel like that was a oh I've got to get this guy. I believe that he can like be the next step for this club. He's a name. He's going to kind of catapult us into this next stratosphere and that doesn't happen. And maybe I'm t- I'm like talking nonsense and obviously I don't know what's going on behind the scenes at Spurs, but it it almost feels to me like he has lost a little bit of that mojo, a little bit of that like self-belief and the the intimidating negotiator and he's going to draw out these these transfers. Like it's it's annoying if you're a fan of the club who's trying to buy the player, but it also makes those clubs less likely to try to pillage Tottenham, which is where mm-hmm. I think they maybe were. And he has made them a club that can't be easily yeah. taken apart. If you're going to have to buy one of their players, it's going to be a lot of money. And so that's all really strong. He has this this like keen reputation, but then following Mourinho, I don't know if y'all read the uh, the piece from the Athletic about their search for a manager and how many people they went through. Yeah. And it's not. And it's not even really a logical like, oh, that didn't work. Oh, this he signed there. Oh, he said the it's it's very like, oh, maybe that guy. No, not that guy anymore. Okay, we're gonna go. For, we're not gonna. No, we're gonna hire this guy instead. We're gonna hire uh, Paratici to like do the search for us midway through, and we're gonna start it back over. And they kind of keep going back to Eric Ten Hag, and then never being convinced. And by the time they decide maybe he is the one for us, they can no longer get him. And that all just felt so chaotic and shambles that it, it it's hard for me to let go of that or forget about that because that's such an ongoing thing. And I really like Nuno, but we don't know if that's going to end up being a positive or not yet. And yeah. I think that is a big aspect of this for me. As as much as I, as much as I do think Levy has done a, a good job over the last 20 years, I think his tenure will be defined by what happens next by the post stadium yeah. yeah. years, yeah. because so much has been about building Tottenham up to a point where they have, you know, Joe's talking about the valuation, 1.6 billion, I think it is, valuation. They have the, the, probably the best football stadium in Europe now, this mega spaceship of a stadium. They have one of the best training grounds in. So they've got all the assets now in place. And it's similar to how Arsenal kind of built themselves up to that point. 
And now, obviously, you're looking at all that they they did and all they sacrificed. You know, Arsenal couldn't spend money in the transfer market. Uh, Levy might argue that's why he didn't back Pochettino at the time because that was coinciding with the construction of the new stadium. If if all that sacrifice is for nothing, then I think Levy's legacy is tainted. However, if they continue to build and to the point where they they're just permanent members of the top four, they're challenging for titles. Then it, it's just going to add to what I think has been a a, a very good job of overall. Yeah. I think on balance, though, I think what you said there, Graham, that the proof is in the pudding about he's been there 20 years. Longest serving chairman, you know, Premier League teams generally don't suffer falls in the chairman position, generally. So I think it's um, it, it's very much a proof of, of, of his excellent work there. And I think we can all agree that um, he's most of his value comes from the fact that we saw in the All or Nothing documentary that he sits and have his, has his meals with the players in the uh, in, in the training yeah. ground. So I just, I just love the idea of him in the last few weeks sitting opposite Harry Kane locking eyes as he eats his Cheerios <laughs> wonderful <laughs> wonderful just it, he does just, he wants that convivial atmosphere Ryan that was a big thing he talked about with their next manager <laughs> which there you go I mean I, like maybe that is in response to Jose Mourinho uh but Graham I also I, I totally agree with you that I think we'll know maybe in five years like a much clearer picture because with the stadium being as it is as you mentioned but also just in London so it's like this same word like if you're gonna do a giant like arena concert, decent chance you're doing it there and they're going to have that income. They're going to have that money coming the in. NFL. Yeah, and yeah. the NFL, a big one. So like post-COVID, when you start getting crowds and people can go back to things, uh, then there will be more money coming in. They will be able to buy more players. And going back to that athletic article, it if you believe it, which I guess I do, it sounds like Pochettino was down to come back and was maybe really yeah. interested in leaving PSG pretty quickly. And PSG said, no, that's not happening. And so there he stays. But there is a world in which we we go back to normal. Hopefully there are fans in the stands. There are NFL games. There's other stuff happening. There's money there. And then Pochettino comes back and rebuilds that squad again. And maybe they are this powerhouse that I thought they were going to be. I think maybe we just might be talking about them in a little bit of a down period. Well, let's uh, come back and review this in five years' time so we get more of the post-stadium consensus. It'll be called the Jacksonville Jaguars Stadium presented by T-Mobile by that point. Um, But we'll still get a a good (laughs) idea of what's going on at Tottenham there. Thank you, Richard, for the question. Let's get another one in before we go for a break. Uh, This one, a question from a friend of the show, the only certified rock star that I know who listens to this show, Mm. Mr. Adam Kiever. Hello, Adam. As a Barcelona fan, I'm missing somebody very special right now. No, not him, says Adam. It's Ray Hudson. Can we just take a minute to pour one out for the end of Ray Hudson and La Liga? Well, La Liga's still going and Ray Hudson is, but I get what he's saying there. (laughs) Instead of cries of magisterial, (laughs) now it's just a generic British guy telling me somebody should have done better with that. Alas, that's the question from Adam. Um, Is that not just you, Ryan? (laughs) <laughs> it's pretty much mi- mirroring my exact thoughts yes indeed uh, if you do need your Ray Hudson fix by the way he can now be heard on the Inter Miami calls um, which is uh, still very enjoyable um, La Liga now being on ESPN plus of course a couple of Del Rey is there as well I've got to say I like the ESPN plus team they've got Ian Dark Derek Ray Adrian Healy uh, Sebastian Salazar's on there too and you get that Ian Dark and Maka, Steve McManaman and combo, that delightful combo of uh, the pre-NBC Premier League days as well. Um, Taylor, where yes, do you sir. stand on Ray Hudson? I, I, lo- I love him personally, uh, and, but I understand he's Marmite in that some people love him, some people don't. I See, I think you have just reached phase three of Ray Hudson. I think there are three phases. I think the oh. first one is when you first... Uh, hear him like when I was teaching in Turkey I remember one of my friends was a Barca fan and would always show his students Ray Hudson commentary because it was just so ridiculous and they always loved it and that was like an exercise he would use and like how do you come up with ridiculous metaphors and so there's that initial phase of he's hilarious and amazing then after a few games it becomes like oh he's he's still calling it magisterial he's still (laughs) referring to like seal backs as being slippery Uh, and there's like a we get it Messi's very good sort of phase And then you push through that to get to phase three, which is, man, this guy's just great. And he is just so fun. And you're right, Ryan. Those Inter-Miami broadcasts, like, that team is is also shambles. My second usage of shambles in this episode. (laughs) Uh, But he makes them a more fun team to watch because any little moment, any step over or nutmeg, you know he is going to erupt into enthusiasm. And it does kind of raise the energy a bit. So I am with you. I think he's great. 
I was watching an Inter Miami game a couple of weeks ago. It's probably one of the, the the games that we talked about in the weekend review. He described a Rodolfo a Rodolfo Pizarro goal as a gangster goal. I have no <laughs> idea what that meant, but it was brilliant. I loved it. <laughs> but have you not seen Scarface, Graham? <laughs> okay. uh, I have but I'm struggling to <laughs> join the dots there but I don't care it was brilliant it was the best gangster goal I've ever seen in my life you didn't see the part where uh, Pizarro ran over and just put his face into a mound of flour in an homage to Scarface <laughs> that was that's what he was referring to <laughs> I missed that he, bit his celebration was you cockroaches wanna play rough <laughs> That's great. That was a good Tony Montana, Ryan. Thank you very much. I do try. I do try. Um, you know what? You know what? 77% just because of that. Well done. Yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh. What a day. What a day for me. Joe, how do you feel about Ray Hudson? I'm, I don't want to make this a, a, a judgment on Ray Hudson or not, but I, I, I certainly miss his calls. I do miss uh, um, his calls on the league, I should, I should say, and I miss him specifically talking about Messi because those those uh, noises, those squeals of ecstasy you'd hear from him on the call uh, behind <laughs> Phil Shane occasionally as if he was having what Victorian women might have called a hot flush. I I am in phase three of Ray Hudson, as Taylor put it. I really enjoy listening to him call games, uh, him talking about Indiana Vasilev and, and using Indiana Jones in there with Inter-Miami, and then, yeah, all the messy stuff. It's so, 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 so good. I pulled out three of my favorite Ray Hudson messy quotes in preparation for this question. Lionel Messi, you could drop a tarantula into his shorts and he'd still be cool. Defenders try to follow him on Facebook and he comes out on Twitter. That's how evasive he is. That one's so good. And this one might be my favorite. He soaks up the defenders like a paper towel soaks up milk. I mean, come on, guys. Anyone he just who doesn't, milk that day. That's all that probably. is. Probably. He's like, oh, paper towel, messy. Ah, I'm going to use that later. I mean, how do you not love Ray Hudson? I am genuinely bummed that he's not uh, calling these games for ESPN Plus, for ABC, for ESPN. I think he... I just think that's a mistake, and maybe there's reasons behind it. Maybe he didn't want to do it. I don't know. I don't know Ray Hudson personally. But the team that they that ESPN Plus has assembled has some commentators I really like. They have some commentators that I don't enjoy as much. But, man, Ray Hudson would have been the star of the show alongside Lionel Messi, the, even though he's gone now. There is an irony as well that Messi's still on BN. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That the yeah. oh, wow. uh, legal rights have gone to – that's right, isn't it? They're still right. uh, legal yeah. or is on BN Sports, yeah. That's right. Come on, yeah. Bian, give give Ray a call. Get the old team back together. Uh, yeah, that's that's not a bad shout. I suspect um, the reason he didn't go to ESPN Plus, I'm speculating here, is that he is a man who loves South Florida, and um, that's where Bian were and are based. And maybe ESPN Plus are very much not in that area of the country, which they are not. Um, I used to host a Sirius XM radio show on Sunday mornings, which approximately three to four people listened to, which is why I don't do it anymore. <laughs> um, but Ray often used to very kindly come on and guest with us. And he was always a great laugh. I always remember one time where most of the interview was describing an iguana that had just got into his house in Miami and um, ended up describing players and relating them to this iguana that was in his house for most of the time. So, uh, right. Yeah. Is, is his normal speaking voice like the same as his broadcast voice? Because his broadcast voice reminds me of a car that is out of gear. Like it's it's very like high pressure, high intensity. Is that just how he talks, or is he a little bit more mellow in normal conversation? We spoke on Sunday mornings, and I think he was a little, ah. little more mellow, but still very right. much with all the, the the similes and everything. They were all very much in there. So um, that is he. He yeah, I think he write he must script some of them, but a lot of them are off the cuff. I think from from what I can see. Uh, yeah. I also interviewed him um, for for an athletic piece I wrote about the NASL. Um, I spoke to Rodney Marsh and a few other uh, Brits who came over uh, to play in the NSL, and he was he was charming for that as well. And he was talking about his early days playing with Newcastle, and uh, that led me to think to ask you, Graham, in the UK, are people aware of Ray Hudson, or is it just that on online clips of his uh, calls have yeah. circulated? Is it that kind of thing? Yeah, as I think it's a it's a kind of Twitter bubble thing, but certainly um, British European football fans know of his. No, have it of his calls. You know, like a number of a number of his commentary pieces have have gone viral after messy goals. It tends to be messy goals, I have to say. And I think he's played quite a significant role in the. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but he played quite a significant role in the appeal of Messi in the United States. You know, and that, that those clips do tend to go viral. And I, I'm a big believer that commentary is so important to the broadcast of good goals and good soccer moments. I mean, can you imagine? The obvious one is Aguero's goal without Martin Tyler's call or Manchester United winning the treble without Clive Tildesley going and Solskjaer's won it. So I, I do think commentary is really important to 
the appeal of those moments and and Hudson on Twitter and in social media circles you know th- he was he was perfect Man. for those messy moments Graham Definitely. that's such a that's such a really interesting point because like do you know who Joe Buck is uh not familiar I have to say he- I think he does he does baseball, but he definitely does football. And there was a, a, a while back, there was like a montage of a person doing a Joe Buck impression, but calling historical events. But it's just the way he does the games, which is just like, oh, the Hindenburg has exploded. Like, it's very calm and normal. And like, you're right that it, it doesn't lend itself to those highlight moments. You need that level of like, I can't believe that just happened. And Ray Hudson definitely brings that. He does indeed. Uh, Adam, thank you very much for the question. Ray Hudson, thank you much, very much for being you. We'll be back after this break with more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show. We're back. We are taking your listener questions. Here's one from James Chocker. Thank you very much for getting involved, James. Who is the best poophouser in the US MNT? Paul asks James. And for the definition of poophousery, just to uh, uh, emphasize it there, we've, we've censored that word, by the way, but it's uh, a term for underhand conduct, gamesmanship in soccer, well, you know, trying to gain an advantage with the dark arts, basically. Diving, cheating, time-wasting, nasty tackles. Think Sergio Ramos. Basically, that's what it is. The good um, stuff. The good stuff. <laughs> All the good stuff that makes uh, makes this little game of ours a bit more spicy and a bit more fun. Uh, Joseph, USMNT Paul, who be doing that poop housery. <laughs> so I've got two <laughs> primary names. I'm really curious to hear who Taylor has, and then Ryan and Grimm, if you guys have any thoughts as well. But I've got Kellen Acosta first. Uh, he is always making friends with the ref. He is always trying to slow down the penalty kick procedure for the opposition that happened in the Gold Cup. It's ha- it, it happens a lot for Kellen Acosta. He is not afraid to get in there and get dirty. Um, I think Watke did a video, Chris Russell on Twitter did a video about this. And he also did a video about Matthew Hoppe, who stared a guy down against Mexico in the Gold Cup final. He didn't do the <laughs> Allen Iverson step over, but it was over on the near sideline. And he kind of bodied this opponent to the ground and then stared him down and walked away slowly. And then, and then he actually walked away. But those two players, Acosta and Hoppe, are one and two. I don't know which order. Maybe it's 1A, 1B. I don't know who's on top. But both of those guys have shown some poop housery ability and I think have a pretty high poop housery ceiling long term. <laughs> the poop housery index is high then, Joe. That's what you're saying. Oh, absolutely. It's okay. That's the second best metric just after the uh, Audi player <laughs> index or whatever it's called. Taylor. Yeah, I, I had Acosta for the same reasons as Joe. I had Matthew Hoppy because he... He is just that, like, he's going to scrap. He's going to leave a boot in. He's not going to back down. Matt Miazga is similar. Oh, like, there's the Diego Lainez moment that, that is very <laughs> much an iconic photo. Uh, but I think what I found in thinking about this question is that that tends to be, like, the greatest housery uh, experts tend to be veterans. They tend to be people who know how to, like, manipulate a ref or manipulate a moment. And that yeah. is Pepe or Sergio Ramos or Rafa Marquez. And I think the lack of long, long, long-term veterans with this current national team means that you have those little moments. I think Weston McKinney is one who's had a few. In like He tends to be the victim of Housery, if anything, but there are definitely some like tackles that he goes in for. He definitely will wade into a scrap, and I think he, he knows how to frustrate. But the name that I, I landed on is Greg Berhalter, the current manager, because he has been there as a player and is now the manager, and he knows, I think, a lot of the dark arts and a lot of what CONCACAF, especially CONCACAF Away, is all about. He went through it himself as a player. And so he just has those little 
jabs here and there. He had one recently with Mexico where he talked about in the Gold Cup final, like, I hope we get good officiating and like that this game is played according to the rules when he himself has plenty of times complained about the ref and gotten in the ref's face. And I think he's pretty good about being very friendly with people. He always seems to be like slapping a player on the back as they're about to sub on. And I'm talking about opposition players. And there is an element of gamesmanship there and just sort of maybe just being like, hey, man, great. Good luck today. I hope you do really well. And it's just, I don't know. I find that instead of being cheerful, I sometimes think that that is more dark arts than anything else. So those are my four that I had on my list. Hey, Baralter's also a Jersey boy, Taylor. So going back to our conversation yesterday, maybe there's a Mm -hmm. (laughs) tie-in. There definitely is. (laughs) I think... um, uh, you guys have hit many nails on many heads there. I think, is there a fine line between petulance and poophousery in some instances? Yes. Because yeah. Yeah. I was thinking maybe, can we put Pulisic in the category at all? Anyway. That was the one that I, that, I mean, obviously I don't have the knowledge of, of uh, Taylor and Joe, but when I go through the the squad, the most recent squad, you know, it's full of players that I know. And Pulisic, I feel like he's maybe not there yet, but he's got it in him, doesn't he? He's got a bit of poophousery in him. Um and and so maybe that's a role he'll grow into. I mean, is the USA's problem that you don't have enough poop houses? Yeah. Like, just imagine if all the best athletes in America became poop houses instead of playing football <laughs> or basketball. Uh, is that not how that old argument goes? <laughs> it is. You, you nailed it, right? <laughs> nailed it, Graham. I think yeah. that should be your next Eurosport piece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be World oh. Cup winners by now. Well, you, you say it in jest, Graham, but that's kind of the point we made in last week's listener question. So when we were asked about poophousery as well and how some of the very best teams in the world are experts at it, and it's not a detriment to a team, it, it, it's very much an addition. You think about Pep Guardiola teams, for example, who have their middle-of-the-park poophouse uh, expert in, in their team. And with the US MNT not having that edge, if we can call it that, perhaps, Taylor, that does work to their detriment a little bit. I mean, well, I think I think it depends on what we're talking about because to to the point of it being petulance that is where like i'm fine with not having that because that's how you boil over and get a red card i i think though that to play i really do believe that playing away in Concacaf world cup qualifying you have to deal with it so much that it's almost impossible for it not to rub off and for you not to learn some lessons from it and the u.s could definitely be more ruthless with it but i also see plenty of american players like you know just checking their cleats on the penalty spot before a penalty is taken and Mm -hmm. getting in like opponents faces in a very scrum way without actually throwing a punch or ever kicking out or anything like that the last player who I remember would sort of toe that line and occasionally overstep is Jermaine Jones and I do miss Jermaine Jones I do love Jermaine Jones with the national team but I also think that sometimes that would veer into like "Uh uh-oh that's unpredictable Jermaine we don't need that and if it's predictable if it's understandable housery then i'm i'm more okay with it and sure then let's get some of that i think Gio Reyna is also probably a person who can uh embrace that philosophy a bit yeah and if we, if we are going back into previous pools clint dempsey has he got oh, some yeah. housery about him oh yeah yeah no doubt i mean pretty much every player from like 94 to 90 probably 2002 i would say did <laughs> like like you can <laughs> find plenty of video of it uh yeah and then i think clint dempsey is definitely one who knew how to sort of frustrate without actually throwing hands excellent i love that we're getting so many poop housery questions for listening to questions at the moment <laughs> and that everyone's embracing our nomenclature of poop housery as well thank you very much <laughs> uh james for the question there uh, Matt Koss has got a question for us not Matt Goss from Bross Matt Koss would Christian Pulisic make and at least as a sub make sorry I'm going to try that again Matt Koss has got a question for us it's, uh, would Christian Pulisic make and at least be a sub on any national team any national team gents uh, this is Christian Pulisic who doesn't always make his own domestic team can he make every national team Taylor no, but it's closer than I thought it was. Yeah, I would have said yes until I thought about it a little bit more. And like when you look at the players that were left off the Euro squads, like there's not a huge list of people that were like obvious omissions in a in a very like oh that would have changed everything way. And I and I think then that Pulisic was probably yeah he's in the he plays for Chelsea he gets regular enough minutes that he probably makes a ton of teams, but that he is an attacker is the only knock against him because is he making Brazil's like attacking squad? I don't know if he is maybe the same for Argentina. That one's tougher, but I think if he were a defender like and doing what he has done, he is absolutely starting or playing games for 
pretty much every national team, I'd say. Yeah, but I suppose he's not a defender is, is, is the, this is is the, the thing. point there. Um, <laughs> I sort of looked through some of the major teams and thought where he would fit. You know, teams who don't necessarily have a lot of depth at right wing or maybe left wing or attacking midfield. Brazil is one maybe he could do if Gabriel Jesus yeah. wasn't played on the right wing. I think he could certainly get in there. Argentina, I don't think Angel Di Maria's given up there necessarily. Uh, maybe could go on the left over. Who would be on the left? Lo Celso? I don't know. So may- maybe make there like someone like Italy. I don't think he's... I think they've got enough midfield depth. But are, we, are we talking about getting on in the team, the 11, yeah, or as, or as the squad? Well, because was, there's a, there's countless nations where he wouldn't get in the team. But in terms of the squad, the only country I looked through and I was like, he wouldn't get in that squad was actually... It pains me to say this, but was England. England. Yeah. Uh, Rashford, Sancho, Sterling, Grealish, even Saka at this moment, I'm not convinced he gets in that squad over Saka. But, you know, I looked at France, you know, and my instant, my instant reaction was to go, well, I wouldn't get in the France squad, would he? Because everyone thinks that's the most stacked squad in, in world football. So I looked through their Euro squad, you know, Griezmann, okay, fair enough. Coleman, fair enough. Mbappe, fair enough. But then you've got Marcus Turam, who's a brilliant player, but would, you know, I think Pulisic would have a good chance of getting in ahead of him. Usman Dembele has massive potential, but can't stop playing uh, the PlayStation. So maybe Pulisic is getting in over him. So, that, like, England was the only one I looked through the squad, if we're talking about the squad rather than the team, yeah. and thought he wouldn't, he, he wouldn't get in that. Yeah. You, uh, to quote Meatloaf, you took the words right out of my mouth, Graham, uh, with, that, with that statement. Thank you very much. And if he were to play on the left, lest we forget, uh, Mason Mount would probably keep him out of the England team. And uh, Kai Havertz would keep him out of the Germany team, most likely, wouldn't he? So there's a, uh, or, or, or he might do. He's, uh, well, yeah, I don't know. Joe, what do you think on this question? I, I thought, I'm billing you out here, Ryan. Thank you. I thought, um, I thought my, I my initial answer was definitely not. And then I actually thought about it and looked, and it was a lot closer than I thought, right? I think that's kind of where a, a few of us are at here. I think he could crack a lot of the top teams, even France. I went through that ex- exact same process, Graham. England is the biggest one that I don't know he if he would make, right? I think for the, all the reasons that's already been stated. So, yeah, Christian Pulisic, pretty good. I think... I do think as far as any U.S. men's national team player that would have the best chance to make any squad, it actually wouldn't be a defender for me on this U.S. team. It would be Gio Reyna. Because he is versatile, we're seeing him play as an eight now for Dortmund instead of on the wing. He can play on the wing as well. We've seen that last season in the Bundesliga. We've seen it uh, with the U.S. men's national team as well. I think because of that positional versatility, I think he's more versatile certainly than Pulisic. And he's also more physically imposing and can win battles and, and win 50-50 balls in midfield. I think Gio Reyna probably would crack any team in the world. Including Percy Dortmund. That's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's really interesting, Joe, because like, I, I think – I don't know if I agree with you about Reyna over Pulisic, but I will say that it, it's strange to think about the position – and how big of an impact that is. And you're right, Reyna gives you versatility that you might need, whereas I do think Tyler Adams is the best player on the national team, at least right now. But the answer for him is, like, no, he's definitely not making a bunch of different teams because so many countries have very good central midfielders, maybe less so wide attackers, maybe less so central attackers and playmakers. So, yeah, I think I think it's between Pulisic and Reyna. I could see well, either one in that conversation. Can I, can I put forward Sergino Dest, then? At right mm. back again, yeah. Engl- England is the one I'm thinking. You know, <laughs> England have uh, about uh, nine of the uh, nine of the ten best right backs in the world at the moment. So again, maybe not England, but would he get in the France team that has you know Benjamin Pavard at, at, at right back? Uh, probably Italy. Florenzi started that tournament at, at right back. I, I think he's better than Florenzi. Uh, you know, I think there's a number of national teams that Sergio Des would would start at right back. So for me, he's the one I look through and I think. I don't know if he's better than Pulisic or Reyna, but he's the one that would get in the most national teams, in my opinion. That's a good one. Yeah. Is there a single player that would get into the England squad? Because even the only thing I would say that I can think of as a vulnerability is goalkeeper. And I think Matt the Turner, US has, baby. Matt Turner, baby. Hey, we got some good goalkeepers, <laughs> but I think there's still the like there is still the discussion of who will be the starting goalkeeper for the US. Joe and I both err on the side of Matt Turner, but I don't know if that would be good enough for him to then be starting for England. So that like that's the only like positional vulnerability I could think of, and even there we don't have maybe the strength. So uh, short of that, I, I think yeah, maybe maybe England is just the uh, the team the team that won't let in Americans. Uh, yeah, so we've got we've taken a question about Christian Pulisic and turned it into England are super stacked, aren't they great? I love that. Very good. Thank you very I much. Don't. And that's why you won the Euros. 
We won it in spirit. We didn't horse collar anyone, Taylor. Anyway, let's take a break. We'll be back very shortly after these messages. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, part three, listener questions. Here we go with Martha Escobar, who asks, if you were suddenly drafted to be a Premier League referee for a regular league game, how long do you think it would take the players to figure out you were (laughs) unqualified? What would give it away? The the two assistant referees and the fourth official are in the know. They're in on this gag, and they're covering for you as much as possible. (laughs) I love this scenario. So Uh, good. This this question is triggering my imposter uh, syndrome, by the way. (laughs) It's basically my daily routine of figuring out when someone will work out I'm unqualified. (laughs) You guys still haven't figured out I'm not a soccer broadcaster. We've been doing this for ages, so I've still got that one going. Um, But in terms of being a referee, I have officiated, I think, maybe two kids games in which my kids were involved it's really hard i think i would be instantly found out within seconds <laughs> is my answer i think i could do like the fitness part of it i was reading that referees mm-hmm. can run between like six and eight miles per game i think i could handle that my slight uh, post-pandemic paunch might give me away as a referee perhaps um uh, yeah for, for me I'm not getting away with any kind of subterfuge in that respect joe i reckon you might be able to swing it Maybe. Ryan, you're so right, though. Like, where do you stand? I've watched so many soccer games in my life. Where do you stand at kickoff? I cannot think of the answer to that question. (laughs) I hadn't even thought of that before we started. (laughs) I was thinking I was going to get exposed, maybe not with, like, fouls and 50-50 duels in the run of play, because if you let it go, then everybody's like, oh, all right, the ref's just letting him play. So that part I think I could play off. The challenge for me is actually in the run of play, then where do I stand? So I don't know where to stand at kickoff. I don't know how referees almost always, 99% of the time, don't get in the way of the ball. Like, they never touch the ball, and I don't know where to go to be able to see what's happening. I don't know where I should be standing and moving and running. I think I think I could handle the running as well, Ryan. Uh, but, yeah, that my positioning would really let me down. This is, this is a hard thing. Referees have a hard job, guys. They have a really hard job. Do you think, Joe, you could fake like, the body language? Could you get that Graham Pole off your trot with you, you know, pushing, <laughs> pushing away with the card in your hand? Could you do that? I was thinking about what happens if it's a penalty call, and I don't call it because I'm not going to call it, right? I don't, I don't know what's a penalty. I don't, I'm not going to be able to tell that. So I'm going to have to play it off. I was literally thinking about this this morning. I'm going to have to play it off, and I was wondering, can I go toe-to-toe with a really angry Sergio Ramos? The answer is no. I'm melting in that moment. Uh, this is not going to go well for me, guys. 
we're, we're too much of a wallflower podcast. That's the problem, I think. <laughs> um, Graham, in, in the UK, uh, I was reading up, you can start refereeing at 14 years old. You can become a youth referee at 14 years old. And you, there Who's are doing nine. That? I know. I know. Yeah, I, I, there's, there's, there's questions there. But the um, you, you can go through nine levels, the ninth level, and get up to the first level, which is refereeing at Premier League level. It's kind of like, I think it's like going clear in Scientology, where you work through these levels, from what I can understand. But you have to pl- apply for promotion through each tier. And um, you're examined in your matches, and you have to do at least one season at each level, Graham. So to me, that's telling me you need at least nine seasons of refereeing games like every week under your belt <laughs> can you fake nine years worth of refereeing every week graham um well i mean i faked 10 years of being a football writer so hey! uh, yeah pr- probably but um like i, I know i was joking about By who guys, i really i really love all of you publicly talking about how you're not qualified to be on the show and talk about <laughs> soccer in one episode really good work really good work really enjoying this you're also modest <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I was joking, obviously, about, um, <laughs> no, I was going to say I was joking about, um, you know, who would be a kid referee, it's kind of strange thing to do. But honestly, see if see if you want to, if you have the foresight to be like, look, I'm not going to be good enough to be a player, but I want to put myself at the center of the action. Like, not a bad route to put, like, to be involved in professional soccer, because I can imagine the talent pool at 14 years old for referees is maybe not that deep, so... Yeah, like I've totally changed my mind in the space of a minute. Like a minute ago, I thought you were a weirdo if you're a 14 year old referee. Now I'm thinking you're smarter than all of us. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I would definitely. Uh, Joe, you've now got me worried about where I would stand. I hadn't even thought about that. That is a nightmare. <laughs> um, but I would also forget things like when I was when I was uh, uh, played as a as a teenager. One of our referees forgot his whistle, so I ended up just shouting things, going free kick, throw in, corner kick. So if that was me, I would, that, that, yeah, that would probably give me away a little bit that I'm not a referee. Taylor, you interviewed Simon Cooper, a really good interview mm-hmm. on the TSS feed last week. Uh, in his book, his Barca book, I think he tells yeah. a story about Pep Guardiola stepping in to be a referee. Do you recall that anecdote? That is in the other Barca book, but uh-huh. yes, I, he's he's written a couple. But yes, that is the one where they didn't know it was Pep Guardiola. They just asked him, like, if anybody has any knowledge about soccer, and he was like, sure. And then he ended up coaching the the yeah. youth players. So I he, think John Muller was, was tweeting about that today. Some game in New York during his uh, yeah. his time in New York, and like asking the parents, can anyone referee this game? This guy says, I can do it. And it turned out to be Pep Guardiola, and he kept stopping the game to coach the children halfway through, <laughs> which to, to, to the chagrin of all the other parents watching. But uh, he couldn't fake Wait it. Wait until they like... get the invoice. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, quite, that's quite true. Uh, Taylor, could, could you do a better job than Pep at, uh, at assimilating into the role? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right then is it, you want more now yeah. yeah so okay so here's here is my actual answer is no and for reasons similar to what joe has mentioned it's it's all of the protocol and procedure that i don't know like i have played a ton of games push comes to shove i'm not sure i could do the opening coin toss of like who says what and when and, and like if you pick do you have to select a side do you have to select ball like there are refs who require you to select certain things but even then like, I think I would forget that I have a mic in my ear. I think I would forget that I have, like, the goal line technology watch, and I would be constantly like, who's talking to me? What's happening? So that stuff would be really, really, really challenging. I think the way I would go is to go with, uh, I, kind of, I wrote his name down, Clesio Moreira dos Santos, the most flamboyant referee you will ever see. You you don't know the one I'm talking about from it's a it's a while back, but he's the one who does Just the, the dancing like, riff. Yeah. yeah, like the no 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 with the hand gestures. Like Joe, again to your point, I would just go way over the top because that's how you deal with Sergio Ramos. If you are just an absolute lunatic, he's not going to try to engage you in discourse about whether or not it was a penalty. He's going to be like, I don't know what this guy's deal is. So I think I would just, I would just go hard into like, like this guy clearly knows what he's doing because no beginner would act this way. I would just go straight to the ropes course. Your strategy is to out lunatic Sergio Ramos. That's how yeah. you're getting through these games. Okay, fair yeah. enough. I look forward to seeing that. <laughs> it's it's going to go well. It's going to go well. I'm excited for it. I think the idea, personally, maybe this speaks to my anxiety, but the idea of being a referee and having, uh, you know, 11 or 12 or even more people criticizing every decision I make, 
it it really terrifies me. I can imagine myself like getting out onto the field. Uh, I don't have a coin. Can anyone lend me one to do the flip? Uh, who's got a watch? I'd just, it'd be like I'd be in my underwear. It'd be one of those bad dreams. I think uh, I don't think I could handle it very well at all. I think it takes a certain type of person to be able to do it. Definitely. Yep. Yeah, I would definitely end up like feeling bad that the other team was mad, and then I I would probably be the one to give makeup calls and ruin games. Uh, so I don't want to be that official. So I will instead just go the lunatic route. That is my plan. <laughs> The lunatic route it is. <laughs> Thank you very much, Martha, for that question. That was a great one. One last question for this show from Alex Latin, who says, I'm curious what the major European leagues are planning to do during the uh, November-December period in 2022 when the old Qatar World Cup is going on and how much time will the victors have to celebrate before they have to return to the mid-season grind? This is an aspect of the World Cup I hadn't really thought about, like the post-World Cup, when... There might be some tired players out there. There's some players who've been going longer in that tournament than others. Um, gents, I've, I've, got, I've run some numbers and found some research on this, but uh, Joe, did, what did you find about the, uh, the situation in Europe's leagues where, uh, next season? It's going to be a truncated and different season. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be, well, probably not as different as I actually initially thought it was going to be, but I've read things like the BBC had a report or wrote, an, wrote a story about the 2022-23 Premier League season and they said that it's likely going to start one week earlier in August and finish a week later in May. And they've also proposed a winter break, the Premier League has. So that would have the games paused from November 12th all the way until December 26th, which is only eight days after the World Cup final. So not a lot of rest for some of those players, although I'm sure they'll be eased, they'll be eased back into those lineups. I saw a bit about the Bundesliga as well that had a similar idea, and that was something that they'd been talking about way back in 2018. But I... I genuinely couldn't find much for Ligue 1 or for La Liga or for Serie A. It makes logical sense for them to all follow a similar pattern. But I read a story in ESPN by Mark Ogden, and he was reporting that a lot of these leagues have gone and and taken – they've had COVID take priority and the immediate planning over really planning in depth for the next league season and a lot of these top leagues. And so Mark Ogden reported back in March that a resolution for the calendar for next season is unlikely to come fully until later this year. So we're going to hear little things and we've already heard some things. But I would expect that starting earlier, ending later with a winter break for almost all of those leagues, even though I believe none of them have officially announced that as of yet. I, th- I think the interesting bit for me is, is, as you were talking about, Ryan, afterwards, like how quickly these players are going to come back. If it is d- eight days after the, the World Cup final that the Premier League in particular is, is coming back, because obviously the 26th of December, Boxing Day, in the UK is like this treasured tradition in English football. So I don't think people will be happy if there's no games on, on Boxing Day. I actually won't be happy, despite everything, despite the fact that the the sensible decision would be not to have soccer on that day. I, I, at Boxing Day is like the best football day for me, so I would be unhappy not to have any football. So you face a scenario like this kind of MLS-type situation where you have maybe fixtures going ahead without without some of the, the big-name players taking part, but, but not you, Pedri, though. You're playing every game. In fact, Barca and Spain are going to arrange some more games for you just to keep you sharp. Yeah. In those eight days, Pedri's going to play some exhibition games every day just to keep him sharp. You're quite right there. But it it is amazing. I I was reading that FIFA um, have suggested that players must be allowed to join their national teams by or on November 14th. The World Cup kicks up on November 21st. That's not a lot of time to get assimilated with your respective squads there. And the Premier Leagues, uh, from what I can see, the fixtures are going to run up until that weekend of November 12th and 13th. So the 14th is the Monday. So then they, they all fly off to, uh, to, to Qatar to, to start, start proceedings there. That's a, a quick turnaround there. Mm. But I think, Taylor, because this is a mid-season World Cup of sorts... Maybe there's less need for rest, if that makes sense, because they'll be much, very much in the swing of things. They'll have the summer off before this tournament starts. Almost all of them will, unless they're uh, put on pointless exhibition tournaments, which they mm-hmm. inevitably will be. Um, what, what else did you find, Taylor? Uh, that it's really stupid to have a Winter World Cup. Is that is that a useful answer? Because <laughs> I, like, I do want to point out that this is not what Qatar bid. When they bid for the World Cup, they were awarded the World Cup on the promise that they would host it in the summer, that they would be able to accommodate the heat, that they would have air-conditioned stadiums and all the other things, and then immediately said, yeah, we're not doing that, we need to move the World Cup. And I just, like, 
I want to point that out to say that this is once again exa- an example of FIFA creating their own problems. And there is an idea that with the pandemic and everything getting pushed back, it does work in their favor because there's games that can now happen when they wouldn't have been able to because the World Cup would have been in the summer. But it's still, that's very much not a thing that they could have seen coming. They could have seen that disrupting every single soccer season is going to cause problems and create confusion. And you're right, Ryan, maybe having that summer off will mean that they're not as fatigued. But I also think to go to, for the players that do get to go, it is a global party. And though they will not be partying and going out every night, it's not the Olympic Village, but it's, I cannot imagine how difficult it would be to go play in a World Cup and then come back to, you know, regular season and up. Oh, we still got like six months to go before this one's over and we're 10th in the table. Awesome. Like it's, I just think it's, it's such, it's a, it's an, it'll be interesting and it's an interesting time and there can be interesting stuff that can happen, but I'm still fundamentally annoyed about that. And then obviously many, many other things when it comes to Qatar hosting the World Cup. One of my favorite things about Qatar's bid was when they were going to have artificial clouds. Do you remember that? Yeah. Oh yeah, that, that's right. Like I, you know, I know, I know the bid. It was a long time between the bid process and the actual World Cup taking place. But I feel like maybe the uh, the underestimated like what the future was going to look like. <laughs> yeah. By twenty twenty two, we were going to have artificial clouds. Yeah. I like that they just. I like to think they just sat down and were like, "Look, so everyone knows magic is real, and we have the ability to control clouds." Like, I that that is the only thing that I can picture. Because yeah, I think it involved missiles, and they were like blowing <laughs> up clouds to send them elsewhere. It felt like how you start a post-apocalyptic movie is we're going to disrupt the atmosphere missiles. and see what happens. I just can can imagine FIFA going to Qatar. Is how so? How do you plan on doing that? And they're like, "Yeah, missiles. <laughs> missiles. You can do anything with missiles. To blow up the sun. It's." gonna work really well i guess the moral is don't award world cups based on technology that does not yet exist uh that's uh, yeah. pr- probably a good guideline uh we've we've spoken a lot about what the premier league will do um mm-hmm. it looks like the championship the uh, english second tier is going to also take a break that's good news for all the arsenal players who'll be going to the world cup so they'll be able to um you know get a break and come straight back to, <laughs> to their league afters leagues one and league, league two we're going to power through uh the bundesliga uh, they're going to treat it, as I understand, as a longer winter break. And they're going to have more English of Ocken, which is uh, English weeks, which is what they call uh, uh, weeks that have midweek games in them. So they're going to have 12 <laughs> to 16 consecutive English of Ocken in the Bundesliga. And uh, my research, according to... Uh, That's such a passive-aggressive name for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, are the English the only league that did they pioneer <laughs> midweek fixtures is that what it, it is? should be mls man it should be named after mls we can't go a day without an mls game <laughs> <laughs> those mls games might used to be my favorites the ones that were like two in the afternoon on a wednesday those those were the days those were the days i uh, was speaking of mls uh, they're actually going to move their season so it finishes in january just so they can play through a major tournament such as uh the, to keep up with traditions <laughs> as well uh anybody else find anything else about uh the the, the schedules for research wise taylor anything else from you sir uh, just that I couldn't find anything else similar to Joe for some of the other leagues. And I think that does go back to COVID and the need for flexibility. And we have confederations that are still figuring out how World Cup qualifying is going to work, let alone what their domestic fixtures are going to look like when the World Cup rolls, rolls around in 2022. So I, I think we will have more clarity in the near future. But I think the answer is basically they're going to give them a break. Some leagues will give them more of a break before and after, some less. Uh, and then they're going to add some time on at the beginning and end of the season. That's pretty much the generic answer. If they can invent clouds in Qatar, can they invent uh-huh. a way to like not have clouds and rain every day in Manchester? Yeah, they cool. just transport it over. They just ship it. Oh, they just move. Them. They just push or just them. invent another month to have the World Cup in. Uh, or just make if, reverse missiles. If I wanted to be courteous... <laughs> I would I like oh my god reverse missiles Joe I love you so much um I would I would remind everyone that the Japan bid was that they would have everybody equipped with I think it was like motion sensing technology every single player and that would allow them to do uh hologram broadcasts so that you could watch like the US play even though they're playing in Japan you could go to your like a, a stadium that was equipped for this and you could watch the hologram of the players on the pitch that is what Japan said they would be able to do i don't think that technology exists either so i'm starting <laughs> to realize so that cool, World bidding is just lying though it's just lying that's all back. it is <laughs> oh that's so cool 
They did bring Tupac back. That was the early, God, I hope that's true. I hope that was the early part of this technology. It was like, just in case we get this bid, we got to start working on this, guys. They were, the, the, yeah, the Japanese 2002 World Cup committee finally invented this technology and thought, who should we contact? Tupac. <laughs> That's the one we need. Oh, this 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 conversation's taking a turn. I mean, he, he's he's alive in Cuba. We all know this. So, like, let's just go get him and see if he'll uh, be a hologram. Why not? This feels like a good spot to jump off this list of questions episode, guys. Um, thank you very much to Alex for that question. Thank you to everybody who sent their questions in, indeed. And Taylor Wilkrell, thank you to you, sir, hologram or otherwise. Uh, I, I am a real me, uh, but real Graham will not be with us next week. Real Graham is going on vacation for the first time in, I think, 18 years. So I just wanted to say, listeners, thank you all for listening, but also Graham, uh, enjoy your vacation, my friend. Thank you. I will. I'll, I'll get uh, Japan to send a hologram <laughs> of me. That's good. As long as it's a hologram and not a missile, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Graham, if, yeah. if you're on vacation, will you cut down to sort of eight to ten games a day of watching? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe a bit, maybe 12, you know. Let's not, let's not be too drastic here. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Um, and Joe Lowry, thank you so much for your contribution, sir, and your reverse missiles. I'm still trying to imagine what that is. <laughs> Anytime, Ryan. <laughs> thank you, listener. We'll be back soon. Bye! Bye! <laughs>